the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Tim Callen. Tim is a financial advisor and co-founder of his wealth management firm, Callen Capital. He started this firm back in 07, right before the financial markets imploded. And they've been since successful in growing their firm up to over, actually over a billion dollars. So uh, welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming. So, um, you know, you've been in this industry a while, right? In the, in the wealth management industry a while. Over 20 years. Tell me what you guys are doing right now with uh, Callen. Well, I'll give you a little background on our firm. As you mentioned, we started this company in 2007. We're a wealth management, wealth management firm. My brothers and I um, are partners, and yep. we all started the company. Prior to that, we were with uh, Merrill Lynch and their private banking and investment group, which is Merrill's kind of dedicated high net worth wealth management channel. And I started in the industry in 2000 with Merrill Lynch. We really wanted to roll out and start our own independent wealth management firm that acts more as a, as a fiduciary on behalf of our clientele. So we did that successfully, as you mentioned, in 07. Uh, I'd like to think that we, we knew the writing was on the wall in terms of the global <laughs> financial crisis, but I re- really didn't have any idea at that time. Stock at Merrill Lynch was trading at $98 a share, and we used to have a sign on our wall that showed Callens left Merrill Lynch in 2007 when the stock was trading at about 100 bucks a share. <laughs> nice. So we uh, rolled out, started our firm, and uh, as you mentioned, then the global financial crisis happened. But we managed to navigate through that. For the entrepreneurs that are on the call, you all know how difficult it is to start a company, and we went about two years without taking a paycheck. And wow. part of that had to do with, with uh, what was going on in the economy at the time. But we successfully rolled some clients over um, to start and see the business. But uh, today, if we look back, it's, um, you know, we've grown about closer to about a billion six in assets under management for roughly 165 families. So on average, the liquidity is about 10 million uh, uh, per family. So we kind of focus on that high net worth to ultra high net worth type clientele. And when you add in uh, sort of real estate assets and, and, and business assets and things of that nature. The net worth is in the 20 million uh, plus range on average with some folks up in the 100 million uh, plus type range. We have uh, an office here in San Diego and another office in Austin, Texas. That's and great. we really kind of provide you know two services. One is the portfolio management and the other is the financial planning and consulting side where we kind of advise on all areas of a significant estate. So think of Retirement planning, trust and estate planning, wealth transfer techniques, tax minimization, risk management, and philanthropic techniques. Nice. So we have a team of planner that, planners that advise on that. So that's a little bit about us and the types of folks that we work with. And um, Yeah, so what, um, that's, that's great. So when you were in 07, right, in 08, seeing all this and you're, you know, you're in, a, in an office with your brothers, I can just, I'm just trying to imagine this, right? You're you're seeing the whole world meltdown, right? And uh, were you guys ever like, what did we do? Why did we, you know, why did we go out on our own? Or were you kind of like glad that you were able to go out on your own and not have to, you know, get dragged down with Merrill and all that? There's a lot of mixed emotions. And of course, we were now business owners and we had overhead, we had employees, we had rent that we had to deal with. So from that perspective, it was very nerve wracking. But in hindsight, it was nice to be outside of the large banks and brokerage firms that were in such a negative limelight at that time. And we were among the first that would roll out and go independent. Now it's much more common to see advisors leave brokerage firms to go independent. But but back in those days, it was very unusual. 
most people would go from one brokerage firm to another brokerage firm is a much safer bet. You get a, you get a check for making the move, mm-hmm. and then you have another employer that will pick up your overhead expenses. So that's why it was a lot more common back in those days. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a very challenging time, but it was nice to be able to pick up the phone and call, you know, old clients and prospective clients, mm-hmm. and have that news going within the large brokerage firm saying, "Look, we're independent. Yeah. We're not part of that. We're um, not getting dragged down." <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. So I think in hindsight, it worked out to our benefit. That's great. And um, so being at Merrill Lynch, you focused on high net high net worth individuals and. Um, wealth management there as well did kind of similar but you focused you did some um, you know work with some mortgage stuff right I mean like you didn't personally do mortgages but I know you came across like uh, you know your clients needed mortgages and and that kind of thing and and was there uh, like a mortgage division that you referred to or did you kind of help them with private client loans and stuff like that as well yeah when when working with a a large brokerage firm they had their own bank in-house and so we were somewhat prohibited to refer outside it would be considered dealing away from your institution right so when we did mortgages they were through merrill lynch's uh, mortgage bank and they had a very competitive floating rate product which we did a lot of back in those days and you know for clients that held on to that product over the years they've they've they would have done extremely well because it was based on uh libor and as you know libor for the last uh decade in fed funds and all the other short-term interest rates have been at or near zero right so yeah it was a great it was a great product and we did a lot of that at that time and um i'm not sure how many of our clients held on to it but um and now it's obviously going through the roof on the short-term loans yeah yeah you don't want to have an adjustable right now right (laughs) hopefully your clients locked in a 30-year fix back uh a year ago or whatever right right. (laughs) um so also like you know right now kind of fast forward ahead you know, I know you went through COVID. That was probably a little nerve-wracking as well, um, having all the client, all those clients in a billion dollars in, you know, in uh, wealth management. Um, that's a lot to have on your shoulders. Like, so how was it going through COVID? Was that nerve-wracking, or did you kind of have some good strategies that you're able to to foresee or kind of navigate that? COVID, as with just about every recession, uh, was incredibly stressful as well. Yeah. And that one was more of a, a rip the Band-Aid off. The economy ceased to, to create and function in a matter of weeks. And so if you can kind of take your back your, yourself back to those days, the market crashed almost instant, instantaneously. And, and the uncertainty was pretty incredible because you knew that the federal governments around the world were suspending all the economies and all economic output and the ability to get together and function. So it's not like anything we've ever seen um, historically. It was the the second largest recession after the Great Depression, but it was it was it, it was over quickly. Yep. It's and like it was a, a it was a, it was a V-shaped recovery, and things got back to where they were in a very quick p- uh, period of time, which is unlike like other recessions. Like for example, in two thousand, you know the 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 tech bubble right. took several years for that to play out. So that was more of a kind of a U-shaped um, recovery. And I would, I would argue that this, this situation we're in now is a, a little bit more comparable to 2000 and more of a slow bleed right. relative to rip the bandaid off like we had in the, in the, in the pandemic. So with that in mind, the 
tech bubble really fed and kind of contributed to this to that recession. What do you think is one of the major contributors to this this one? We've had extremely accommodative both fiscal and monetary policy over the last decade. Yeah. So you think about interest rates were incredibly low, and then you had um, the Congress, you know, spending a lot of money right. in the form of uh, fiscal policy. So a lot of deficit spending and that kind of thing in order to keep economic growth going. Now with hindsight in, in, in focus, we can now see that they, you know, obviously overdid it. They had to do some of that during the pandemic because, like I said, the economy was shut down. So the government had to step in yep. to bail us out. And had they not done that, we would have had a, we would have had a depression similar to what we had back in the, in the uh, 30s. But they went a little too far. Yep. And there's really no question about that. And I think they would admit that at this point, too. And so now they're kind of playing catch up. <laughs> yeah, trying to trying to figure that out, raise rates. I mean, rates have risen more than I've ever seen in my career. I mean, just, I mean, I got into the business in like 98 and it was, rates were super high. They were really, you know, they're up in the, I think for a 30 year mortgage, it was seven and a half, eight percent with Fannie. And then on the, you know, subprime side, as that started coming out, it was like 10%, 11%, 12% first mortgage rates. Um, I know they were much higher before that. My parents remember that. Um, but this last run with them just really tightening and trying to rein in inflation, they've raised it so fast, so quick. Right. What, almost like a um, knee jerk in a way. Do you think they're going to get what they want, the Fed? Like, do you think this is going to kind of rein in that inflation? And do you think we'll see kind of an end to this hiking of the rates? I know it, you probably don't have a crystal ball, but... It'll definitely work. Yeah. Eventually. It might be a little bit slow. It's already showing signs of working. Yeah. You've seen inflation come down a little bit. It peaked up at about nine year over year, and it's come down in the in the, in the low eights. It'll work. It, the question is not whether it'll work. It'll it, it, at what expense. Yeah. And will they be able to create what they like to say is a soft landing? It's very very difficult for them to be able to pull off a soft landing. There will be some d- damage done by this, and they know that. Yeah. They know that asset prices are have come down and may continue to come down. They know the unemployment rate will start to creep up, but all of that is in an effort to tame in inflation. Yeah, which isn't necessarily good, right? You don't want unemployment, especially going into election years and stuff like that. Like they want typically to have unemployment low and, but yeah, like you said, at what cost, right? Like they're- But they want inflation low too. Right. So that's bad for elections. Yeah. And so it's it's just, um, which, when are you willing to give on? You got to give on one of them. Right. And right now they're willing to give a little bit on the unemployment rate. So we we will, without question, see the unemployment rate start to creep up from from these levels. And do you think it'll be in more what what level jobs? Like, uh, is it going to be middle class, lower middle class, poor, the poor, like those kind of jobs that will be? Because I I mean I know you probably seen this too in restaurants and stuff. There's just not as many impl- workers, right? There's not a lot of not saying that's the super low end, but like there are a lot of the lower end labor work market, you know, it's hard to find a handyman. It's hard to find like, you know, so I'm just curious, do you know what kind of area do you think it'd be across the board? I mean, if I had to guess, it'd be more across the board, but what we found during the pandemic is, is a lot of people left the labor force. Yeah. And particularly seniors went into retirement early and 
a lot of that kind of trickles down. Mm-hmm. And so you, so you start to see other areas, for example, waiters and waitresses not showing up to work because they have other opportunities to go work somewhere else. The demand rises in a different field. Or exactly. Going so these, yeah. part of what's the Fed is also hoping to happen is that the labor force starts to come back a little bit more. More people come back looking for work because they can't survive on their, you know, whatever pension fund or whatever they were hoping to survive on. So that's also part of the, the goal of this whole thing is to, to bring the labor force back or more people back in the labor force. That will drive up unemployment rates yeah. because now you have more people looking for jobs. Right. And so all of this is, is, is bound to happen. Um, it's just a matter of, of, like I said before, what extent, what damage is going to be done and whether they're going to be able to pull off, you know, a soft landing. I, I just think this is going to kind of go on for quite some time. That's why it'll probably be more like a 2000 to 2002 recession versus a pandemic v, V-shaped recovery. So you think 23 will be kind of a real slow growth or like no growth kind of year? Possible mild recession in 23 is what most forecasters are predicting. Yep. And recessions are technically defined by the Bureau of Economic Research, and it's a little more complicated than just two negative GDP quarters because we've already had that in 2022. Yeah, I think some would argue <clears throat> we're in one now, but I think you... Yeah, you, you can say that we're in one, but there's a lot of other factors that they look at. Um, you know, they, they look at the, the unemployment rate, they look at uh, manufacturing, they look at a number of different economic indicators to determine when the actual recession started. Typically, they make that call seven months after the recession actually started. They say, well, it actually started seven months ago. On average, people seven. are like, oh, yeah, I, yeah. Knew, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, by, by all, I, I think even the Fed has recognized that they will probably drive the economy into a recession into 2023. Yeah. But it is, in all likelihood, going to be a mild one yeah, and a long one. And that will be be hard for I think the the presidential election because you know I mean the Fed gets appointed by the president but like the the, the Fed kind of has their own thing they got to do right they don't really get directed like Joe Biden's not up there saying oh you need to you know raise interest rates or lower them rates I mean I'm sure he could say that but it's not like they're gonna necessarily take his direction right so the Fed has their own kind of way they do their thing um so, you know, I guess if that if there is a recession through 23 and it, and it lingers and it's bad and inflation's still kind of there, um, I, you know, it's going to be an interesting election year, right? Right. It should be an interesting year. And, and the Republicans are going to focus on inflation to try and oust some people in the House and Senate. Right. And the Democrats are going to focus on abortion and those types of issues. Um, chances are a lot of this will swing in the Republican favor, so we'll have a mixed uh, president, Democrat, Republican controlled um, Congress, and that typically, ironically, is good for assets, right. good for markets. Right. There's a lot of historically, right? Like year over year, there's a lot of see gridlock. That. They right. can't get a lot of policy done in either direction. So you kind of yeah. have more predictability, you right? Get more predictability, right? Yeah, that's interesting. So let's kind of widen it to globally. So I saw a headline today. I think it was I totally could be wrong, but was it Turkey that? has like 84% inflation and they just cut their interest rates. I think I think that was the I don't know if it's the right country but one country had an 84% inf, uh, inflation but they just cut their interest rates like by a point and a half or something crazy. I'm just curious if you have any thought on like 
why someone like why a country would do that is it out of like we have to have some growth to to sort of get us even to survive or like what would be the reason someone would do that like that's that's it's one I can't really speak to in terms of why an emerging market like that would cut interest rates when inflation is 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 out of control. Sometimes there is a difference of opinion between, you know, monetary and fiscal policy, which is kind of what you're alluding to. Where um, on the on the monetary side, they're cutting interest rates in order to spur growth, and on the fiscal side, you might be seeing increased spending on behalf of the government. Um, the two kind of offset each other and and oftentimes can can um, negate the effect of the other one so how are we stacking up against the rest of the world i know um you know we tend to look at our markets you know especially like mortgage brokers or real estate we don't really think of what's happening in other countries i mean some of us do but you know it's like we think oh wow we have this high inflation in america but there's high inflation around the world right yeah, absolutely. Across virtually every um, area of the world, there's there's high inflation. In, in in the developed markets, you have high inflation in Europe and Japan. Um, it has been a little lower than in in the U.S. Uh, what's interesting about the U.S. is our dollar is is now um, the highest it's been for many many decades. And if you adjust it for inflation, you have to go back even further um, in terms of how high the dollar is. That. That um, is a result of the fact that we have slightly higher interest rates here in the United States than a lot of the developed countries do, for example, Europe and Japan. So their investors are pouring money into the United States. and it Like continues. into our treasuries and bonds because the Correct. yields are high. And yeah, and it continues to kind of propel this high dollar. Um, high dollar has some, some very serious implications to our economy as well. You know, 50% of the revenues from the S&P, from the, uh, S&P 500 companies are overseas and they get impacted by high dollar because all of a sudden um, as a foreigner the prices of those goods is significantly higher so it it impacts our ability to export it impacts the earnings of those large companies but if you're a traveler and you go outside uh, just like when we were in in Japan it was it was an amazing experience to have high dollar right really helps and like with the UK's pound I mean I, I remember it was a long time ago, but it was like over two dollars, you know, for one pound. And yeah. the euro is now at like parity rights; it's pretty equal. And um, so, yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how strong our dollar is if you stack it up against all the other currencies. And right, and um, it's unsustainably high. It won't be this way forever, but as long as our interest rates, that differential between our interest rates and their interest rates is high enough to bring in more money, mm-hmm. it's going to continue. So yeah. for the foreseeable future, we should have a high dollar. So I've been noticing the invert, inverted yield curve, like, um, you know, the two years and the 10 year, you know, the difference there. And it, that's typically like a sign of a recession, right? Like that's a sign of a future, some, some doom and gloom or whatever it might be. What is your thoughts on that? It is. It's it, most recessions historically have been preceded by an inverted inverted yield curve, and it's the market telling you that in the short term the Fed has got to raise interest rates. In the long term, it's going to impact growth, and so longer interest rates are going to be lower than what they are today, and that's impacted uh, among the the markets. Basically, the market's telling um, the world that the Fed is potentially going to overdo it and put us into a recession 
in the future. And then they'll have to cut rates. And then they'll have to cut rates. Yeah. So that's what's priced in, that the Fed will go up to potentially up to as high as 460 on the Fed funds rate into 2023 before they'll have to start to reduce interest rates because they kind of overshot. And now, now, you know, now we're in a recession, unemployment rates are going up, and they'll have to cut. To stimulate, to, yeah. to stimulate again. Do you think that will cause more inflation? Or is it more, it's more tied right to the, the spending? It, it, they, they probably won't reduce the rates until they have the inflation under control. Under control. So Down they, to what, they, what number do you think? The long-term forecast for uh, Fed, for, for inflation is right around uh, 270. So, you know, we've had this 8 and 9% sort of year-over-year inflation rate, but all the expert forecasters expect the next four years going forward to be about a 3% inflation which is historic historically pretty good right if that's the case they should be able to bring it back down interest rates not to where they were before at zero or right. 0.25 but a more normalized call it two percent um in terms of fed funds which would be a mortgage broker's dream to <laughs> buy all these people that got into higher rates right 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 interesting so um I know you've worked with mortgage professionals in the past, like you have a go-to mortgage guy, right? And you've developed relationships on kind of referring people. And I know like your firm is, is uh, you know, you, you, have, you have a lot of clients that are high net worth. Often, you know, someone will go to a bank, let's say like a B of A or a Citigroup, and, they'll, and, and they have a lot of money and, and they have money parked and say they, they got turned down for a mortgage they would have you know the the temptation or the the thought like well if they're not going to prove me for a mortgage i'm going to take my money elsewhere right like that happened that's probably happened to you in the past i mean not not because of more maryland maryland had a mortgage division um but i'm sure you've heard of that happening right where someone offers a lower interest rate if you park you know a million bucks over here um is have you seen that um you know i, I know that you know obviously the the mortgage side they're not making the money on the mortgages or making the money on the, the, the deposits, right? The, the wealth um, being held. So um, is that kind of a strategy you think that some uh, wealth management firms use is like using, you know, taking a loss on interest rate, um, but getting the person to park money in into their, their uh, firm? Yeah, it's much more pre prevalent now than it was in the past. But I think every bank out there has some incentive it seems like for deposits yeah and and in their, their wealth management departments right and sometimes we as an independent firm might move some client assets over to b of a or wells fargo in order to get our client the best price yeah um schwab is our custodian they have the same thing they have a schwab, schwab bank and they look at deposits at schwab in order to price that out so it's a difficult game to, to compete against because as you said, they're taking a loss, or at least not much of a of a of a profit on the mortgage itself in order to attract those assets. Right, which makes it really difficult to, to compete. You know, obviously as a mortgage broker, because you don't have that, you know, asset management side of right. your firm. You know, your broker shop. Um, but you know, in in some instances, you might come across someone who, maybe not with your firm, but you could probably you know with your colleagues, like you've heard of you know, people needing a, a mortgage relationship, like a broker that can figure out more complex deals and stuff like that. I know you have one that you work with, that you've been working with for a long time, but if say like a mortgage broker, one of our listeners wanted to um, 
develop a relationship with someone like you, not you necessarily, don't, don't, don't call Tim, but <laughs> um, if they wanted to, like, what would you say a good approach would be? To like, cause, cause it is a good relationship, right? Like you, I know you refer mortgages to your, your mortgage guy and I'm sure he might refer you clients at t- from time to time as well. So like, it's a good thing to have. I think it's when I was uh, doing loans, I loved that relationship. I had one with city and I would, you know, they would refer me deals and uh, on complex co- clients that they couldn't necessarily get, you know, done. Um, but how would you kind of recommend to, to make that relationship? Start with your, your clients. So if you have a particular client that you maybe had a complex situation, you were able to put together a mortgage where maybe some competing firms were not able to do so. And you ask that client, who, who's your wealth management advisor? And you go that direction. Because chances are they're going to have other clients like that. Mm-hmm. Most wealth management firms, my, my own included, we, we're niche-oriented and we specialize in, in specific things. And so there's a good chance that that wealth manager has other clients like that client. Yep. I'd also say to kind of um, put put your best foot forward in terms of, of terms, because what will blow up a relationship is if the wealth manager sends a client over to you and then the client says, you know, they're not competitive at all. I found another deal myself right. over in this direction. You're like, thanks for nothing. That happens <laughs> once, and, and that's it. Yeah. So um, kind of sharpen the pencil the most that you can on the first time. Right. And that way that wealth manager knows that they don't even need to do due diligence on your rates. Right. Because every deal that, that you know Joe gets is already at rock-bottom pricing. Right. Now, which will make you look good, make yeah. them look good, want you know more referrals, yeah. and it's a volume game at that point because you might not make as much money on that mortgage as you may some some others that you deal direct with the consumer, but you're going to get much more volume to make True. up for it, and probably other referrals from that client's friends and from you know right that kind of thing. So that's great advice. Um, any shout outs to anyone that's kind of helped you along the way? I know we you know you've been very successful, so. You know, give you an opportunity to like thank someone that's been there for you or mentored you or anything like that. Yeah, I think you know Schwab is our is our custodian, and I always give a shout out to them. I started my career with Schwab up in San Francisco and had a wonderful training experience. So when it came time to decide on what custodian to go with, uh, we were talking. You know, we had the opportunity to go with Fidelity or TD Ameritrade, but we went with Schwab. They've done a wonderful job for us and and our and our clients and. I have a lot of great friends and, and mentors at, at that company. Uh, some of my former uh, managers at Merrill Lynch were wonderful as well. And they, um, part of the reason that we've kind of gravitated to this high net worth uh, focus is because we worked in, like I mentioned earlier, in the private banking and investment group, which is Merrill's kind of dedicated high net worth channel. We worked very closely with Merrill's investment bank. And so when the banker would come in and advise on an M&A transaction, an IPO or, or what have you, they would bring in advisors, wealth management advisors from the private bank. Because of that, it 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 trained me and my partners to 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 really get good and focus on this business that we do well, which is working with people that have been through liquidity events. Um, so yeah, sh- shout out to my my training at both companies, and um, they've they've really made a great impact. Awesome. One last question I just thought of. Um, I know you do some real estate investing. Do you think right now uh, with interest rates high and kind of the prices softening and coming down, do you think um, 
now, you know, do you think the, the, the prices are going to come down even further over the next year or so in different markets? And do you think it's a good time to maybe start looking for some real estate deals out there? Real estate's a very broad term because you have so many different subsectors in there. Right. You have industrial, you have multifamily in the commercial side, you have um, you know, office, and, and then you have residential. Um, I think if we're speaking residential specifically, that it's generally a lagging indicator. So, you know, marketable securities, stocks, and bonds generally react instantaneously to the news that's out there. The less liquid parts, such as residential real estate, tend to lag. Right. And if you think about it from a seller's perspective, your neighbor with an almost identical house sold his place back in January for whatever it is, $2 million. So they're reluctant to ch- change their price. Right. On the buyer side, you just had a, a double of the mortgage cost. Your 30 year mortgage went from roughly three to roughly six, yep. uh, 30 year jumbo loan. So you're looking at the house that you could have afforded six months ago and now you're looking at a different house and so it gives you buyers the buyer's reluctance to to go out and and buy things and so inevitably what happens in these cases is is that that the prices come down right and so i would expect residential in particular to continue to have softening as it kind of works its way out and you get a healthy uh, mix of buyers and sellers probably you know maybe sometime in 2023 but there are some commercial assets that that are are interesting if you think of office in general how, how bad it got hammered during the pandemic yeah, it hasn't haven't hasn't fully recovered um so there might be some opportunities in certain subsectors of real estate to to do well for sure uh, going forward and you know the interest rates on the commercial side haven't jumped quite as fast as they have on the residential side either so there's a little benefit there that's good man Awesome. Well, appreciate you coming down, taking the time out of your busy day to, to be on the podcast. So, Absolutely. Thank yeah. you, John. Thanks for coming. All right. Please like, share, subscribe, and make sure you give us some tips on what guests you want next. So thanks for watching, and we'll see you on the next one. The Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast.